You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. A quick prefatory note to the listener. The following conversation is organized into three sections. In the first, Brad Rittenhouse explains his use of computational methods to develop his existing work on what he terms data-driven texts of the American 19th century. In the second section, I ask Brad how I might build on my work on Chinese-American writer Sui Sin Far utilizing a digital humanities, or DH, approach. In the final section, Brad and I talk about DH pedagogy in the liberal arts classroom. Thanks so much for listening. Hello and welcome to the C19 podcast. I'm Spencer Tricker, assistant professor of English at Longwood University, where I teach American Lit. Uh, from the mid-19th century to present. Today, it's my pleasure to talk about an interesting digital humanities project with uh, Brad Rittenhouse, a C19 colleague and a friend of mine from grad school. Um, before we begin and before introducing Brad, uh, we'd like to just extend our best wishes to colleagues and students dealing with the health and economic issues as a result of COVID-19, life in quarantine. We're about two months in at the point of recording here and um, the consequences that this has all had for our profession. Uh, also, I just want to you know note that because of because of this quarantine situation, uh, some of the recording conditions are a little suboptimal here, uh, particularly where I am. So I apologize if you hear any stray noises. So um, without further ado, um, Brad, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, you're coming to us from Atlanta. I'm here in Richmond, Virginia. How's it going, Brad? Hey, Spencer. <laughs> Good to see you. Uh, especially in these times when we can't see uh, anyone, let alone our old friends. Um, I am Brad Rittenhouse. Um, I should also say I have a dog next to me that uh, sometimes gets jealous, so um, you may hear her whining at times uh, during the recording. Uh, yeah, I'm Brad Rittenhouse. Um, as Spencer said, uh, we went to graduate school together. Uh, I am currently uh, in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, uh, where I am the lab manager of the and I'm gonna stumble over this, uh, Digital Integrative Liberal Arts Center, uh, otherwise known as DLAC. It's great to talk to you again, Brad, and uh, please do um, say hi to your dog, Ada, for me. Um, so, to give our listeners a little bit of background here, in 2018, you published an article in ESQ entitled TMI, The Information Management Aesthetics of Herman Melville and Walt Whitman, which grants a glimpse into a larger project of yours about the way C-19 American authors incorporate and aestheticize information in their works. You've described to me in the past how your research originates with an overriding interest in large and unwieldy books, hence your title TMI, which stands for Too Much Information, and how they strive to represent, often messily or inefficiently, the explosion of information that accompanied urbanization in the middle to late 19th century. Uh, this work started out in the mode of qualitative analysis, uh, as it is evidenced in your article. But in uh, the last few years, you've been increasingly utilizing quantitative computational methods to develop the project. So can you tell us a little bit about the corpus of texts you've chosen to analyze? It's often where um, DH projects seem to begin. And then tell us a little bit about your methods. 
The corpus that I'm using is uh, the Write American Fiction Library. Uh, I believe it's out of um, uh, Indiana University. Um, Michelle Dalmau over there, I think, is, is the main person working on it. Um, it is, um, and some folks working in the 19th century may have heard of Wright. Um, he was a librarian who attempted to create kind of a list of um, all of the things written in the U.S. Uh, between certain periods of time. I think there's a Wright 1 and a Wright 2. Um, this covers, uh, I think, 1851 to 1875. Uh, it's around 3,000 works, um, and it's thought to be just about everything written in America at that time, or at least published in America at that time, um, of fiction. Um, and just so people have an idea of what it is I'm actually doing so that this may be a little bit more concrete. Um, so what we do is we take those books, uh, we divide them up into 500 word chunks. Um, you can see all of this um, and maybe this will also help people uh, visualize what it is I'm talking about um, on the website at tmi.gatech.edu, tmi.gatech.edu. Um, so you split up the works into 500 word chunks. This is a common technique in natural language processing. Basically, it just gives you a unit of a work um, that is more representative of a piece of knowledge. Um, so if you're looking at this kind of measurement over the entirety of a work, it may be less meaningful than if you can um, make a shorter part um, and go to that individual part. Um, it's also part of uh, connecting kind of the uh, close and distant reading that people um, may have heard of even outside of DH. Those are kind of two paradigms that we talk about a whole lot um, in this field. Um, so you can get kind of these large empirical measures of things, um, but by having that smaller unit, you can also go and, and find places to close read and, and things to actually um, apply kind of traditional humanistic modes of inquiry to. Um, anyways, uh, we do those 500 word chunks um, we do what's called parts of speech analysis, where a computer um, will build a grammar tree and attempt to assign um, parts of speech to every word uh, in those texts. Um, and then basically we just uh, assign a one to everything that's a noun, a zero to everything that's not, divide by 500, and you get a ratio of how thick each uh, a section is with nouns. Thanks for that, Brad. That's interesting. Um, what I'd like to ask about next is a specific finding or example you've come across um, through through your recent work. And um, before I do that, I'd just like to sketch some of the, uh, the background uh, for your project, which I'm going to pull from your description of the TMI project, which again is, is based at Georgia Tech's Digital Integrative Liberal Arts Center, or DILAC, DILAC um, where you, you provide the following information to visitors to that site. Uh, informationally dense literature, you write, sometimes referred to as encyclopedic narrative, has often been prized by scholars and afforded a prestigious place in the literary canon. However, these works tend to be overwhelmingly male. Books like Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow and Herman Melville's Moby Dick, for instance, which assemble knowledge on topics like ballistics and whaling. Um, having originated them, with uh, canonical white male authors like Melville and Whitman, uh, who you discuss in the, in the ESQ uh, piece, your work is now uh, increasingly kind of focused on women writers and authors of color. So can you tell us a little bit about a relatively obscure writer who around the same time as these well-known kind of American Renaissance figures 
uh, was producing informationally dense, or as you put it elsewhere, data-driven literature? Uh, when we look at uh, women and people of color in the corpus, um, we find a lot of really interesting passages that don't really fit into uh, the things that you expect to see if you're going off of Melville and Whitman as the example of encyclopedic or information-dense writing. Um, so there's one writer who I, I continually come back to. Her name is Emma Wellmont. Uh, have you heard Emma Wellmont, Spencer? I haven't, no. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that I've had anyone who has heard of her, um, C-19 specialists or, or otherwise. Um, she was a temperance writer, um, which explains why we probably don't pay much attention to her now. Um, and she wrote a lot of books, and she ends up as a writer... Um, being one of the people who habitually writes uh, in a way that is quantitatively similar to what Melville and Whitman are doing. Um, so very dense in nouns uh, often. Um, and when we go and look at these passages, uh, the most exceptional passages in her works, um, sometimes they do end up looking a lot like uh, Whitman in particular. Um, so she has a passage in one of her books, I think it's called uh, Of Substance and Shadow, um, that looks a whole lot like a song for occupation. It follows an expressman, uh, which uh, for those who don't know, is kind of like a, a 19th century Postmates person um, who takes orders from people on the block um, and goes out and buys those things. Um, so the passage is uh, basically going over like the list of things that this expressman uh, needs to go and buy and how much they cost and, and bringing them back to the, the different people. Um, but then uh, we also look and we see passages. So there's another one um, where it's a person happening upon um, a, a, a terminal alcoholic, um, and they she goes into like this the house or the cabin or the apartment that this person is in, um, and the person gives a little bit of a description reminiscing as they're dying um, of the town that they grew up in. Um, which, you know, saying it, that does sound kind of informational and like this material description that we're talking about. Um, but as human readers, we would probably label that as sentimental writing um, or, or romance or, or melodrama or something like that. Um, so without the, the computational methods, it's something that, one, we would never see because no one's heard of Emma Wellmont, um, aside from the Emma Wellmont uh, scholar listening here um, who's going to yell at me um, but it's also something that we wouldn't be able to quantitatively define as being something similar um, to what Melville and Whitman are doing. Um, a lot of the instances that I see uh, from women writers um, tend to be uh, also um, religious ceremony. Um, I forget who wrote it. There's a book called Joseph the Jew um, uh, by I think a, actually a, a relatively well-known uh, writer, maybe Virginia Wales Johnson. Um, and that describes, uh, I think, like a Passover feast, um, but it's this, it has a lot of very close attention to um, the different kind of religious paraphernalia and the things on the table, etc. Um, that, you know, maybe something that a male writer would write, um, but it's also not like the cetology um, or, or the city streets or things like that, uh, that, that we would um, typically be looking for if we're using Melville and Whitman as, as kind of a gold standard. 
And that, that's really interesting. Uh, you said that uh, the, the writer that you were primarily talking about there is uh, Emma Wilmont, is that right? Wilmont. Wilmont, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that sounds intriguing. It's a way of complicating our, our understanding of, of genre for sure. But it also uh, just jumps to mind, and I, I don't have a lot to say about this, but uh, as I recall, uh, Whitman's one of his earliest works was a was a temperance novel that he um, that he kind of uh, you know was ashamed of in later life, um, and that's yeah. curious to think of how um, there may have been some sort of um, I don't know common impulse in in both writers that somehow was I don't know just first developed in that context. Yes, yeah, that is that's another trend that I've seen, but I haven't been able to um, run the numbers on so temperance novels. There's a whole lot of them that end up being kind of at the top of this metric um but i haven't been able to determine whether that's just because so many people were writing temperance novels um or if they're kind of statistically overrepresented at the the top of of the the metric um interesting yeah and i haven't run it on franklin evans either I am working on something right now, and I just wanted to explain the project kind of as it is in its more conventional form, and then give you a sense of what uh, I've started to think about um, as a possible DH application, and just and just get your basic response to this. Um, and we won't we won't spend too much time, but I just hope to maybe model um, for for listeners who have, like myself, not really been you know spent a lot of time. Um, with digital humanities literature, haven't really had the training that you've had or the background, or the, the, the sort of comfort with computer technology, but um, how we might begin to conceive projects uh, in ways that we could then maybe partner with um, DH folks down the line or, or learn more ourselves and, and take forward. So um, I am currently working uh, on a book project, and w- within that project, I'm, uh, I have a chapter on Sui Sin Far, the Chinese-American writer, from the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, a version of that chapter is forthcoming in American Literary Realism. And in this chapter, I'm, I'm focusing on the development of three of her, uh, what uh, I call Eurasian stories, right? This is a term that she uh, uses to self-describe as somebody of mixed race. Her father was an Englishman and her mother uh, was Chinese. And she writes these stories you know, that are quite unusual um, in that time period, in the, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, that feature Eurasian protagonists. And I kind of trace the development over the course of three decades, 1890s, uh, and then the 1900s and 1910s, and how her approach to this, uh, you know, this subject matter close to her heart takes shape. And I argue that the work actually becomes more intertextual as she goes along. Um, and a key part of what interested me in this in this work was an archival find. Um, and, you know, in grad school, as I was finishing up the dissertation, I was using the Archive of Americana quite extensively. I know a lot of other folks are out there are probably familiar with that um, that corpus, right? And uh, searching late nineteenth century newspapers basically to see um, where uh, the title of one of Suisse and Far's most famous. Uh, stories, its wavering image uh, may have come from because if uh, those those who are familiar with her will have seen uh, that this title is always rendered in um, two sets of quotation marks, and for a long time this kind of escaped the notice of critics, and until about two thousand four when June Howard wrote an interesting article on um, the fact that this was quoting from uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. 
a uh, poem, you know, a poet that was for, for a time extremely popular and now, uh, at the present moment, it, it, we're less familiar with his work generally. Uh, it's not, not taught quite as much. And, um, and so wanting to know a little bit more about, you know, the popularity of that poem, I searched the phrase and, and it turned out that there was this story called Her Burden, published in 1893, that just seems like almost a precursor or intermediary, uh, intermediate text um, that kind of sets the table or is a sort of prototype for its wavering image. It contains like a, a very similar character dynamic um, and it uses the poem by Longfellow centrally. And so that figures into my argument uh, as, I, as I point out how Swiss and Far stories about Eurasians uh, and their sort of interracial identity becomes uh, sort of increasingly intertextual as she develops these stories over time. So that the last story is very much reliant on the reader's knowledge, I think, of uh, Longfellow's work, right? And, and, and I think um, one of the cases that I make in the article is that this makes the work more expansive, but she's relying on pre-existing familiarity with her readers. And this is what leads me to a kind of secondary question. Um, to this point, what I've kind of been talking about is made use of a DH infrastructure, right? The digitization of these newspapers, representing the hard work of, of archivists for a while now. Um, and a lot of us, I think, are familiar with that kind of process. You know, you use these archives, you find a text you're interested in, and then you, you know, you apply the kind of close reading approach. Um, and that's, and that's great. It's been very productive, but, um, taking it a step further, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if what Swiss Infar is, is hoping to achieve in, in making these, these works more intertextual isn't so idiosyncratic to herself and whether or not it might manifest some sort of material response to the constraints of uh, working women writers in the 19th century. Susan Farr was a, um, a uh, what, what's, what's the word that I'm, uh, I'm trying to, to remember here? She was a, 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 like a, a, a typist, a stenographer, excuse me. And um, as a stenographer, right, she spent a lot of time uh, working in shorthand and dealing with material constraints of time. But so much of her work take the, the shape of, of sketches and short stories, right? And so she's working within, um, you know, very constrained spaces. And as a basic hypothesis, I just wonder if writers like Susan Farr and, you know, women of color like her in this era, you know, may have developed techniques to try and, you know, um, play with the, the canon often written by, by white men in this period uh, to give their work uh, a little bit of, of depth within these, these kind of slight formats that they were um, maybe only able to produce, uh, you know, in their, in their small amounts of leisure time. So I'm wondering how much writers that were not necessarily professional writers, women writers, women of color writers, were utilizing intertextuality in the 19th and say early 20th centuries and how we might be able to use um, DH to kind of um, make some sort of, um, uh, come, come to some sort of information about um, a broad array of women's writing in this period um, and, and, and determine whether or not there was some sort of material uh, impulse there. I, I, really, I really don't know. Um, I haven't done much work on this, but if we wanted to test that, right, that sort of importance of intertextuality for these people, what, what kinds of approaches 
could we take, or what's a starting point uh, that we could take this kind of more conventional project and do something, um, you know, with quantitative methods or computational methods? Sure, yeah. Um, and I'll uh, start with some uh, less technical advice. Um, and like I said, I only really want to um, very briefly get into that. Um, but I think for anyone who's trying to do a project, um, so we exchanged uh, some reading lists here in preparation for this. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, you may have noticed is that um, basically, if not all, uh, of the uh, articles that I sent to you have more than one author, um, which isn't usually the case in um, uh, literary studies um, and the things that we may have read in, in graduate school. Um, and that's not just because people in DH are, are better at collaborating or um, it's a more friendly place to be um, or whatever. Um, it's because in doing these kinds of projects, you very quickly um, realize that no one has, or maybe only a very exceptional few, um, has all of the abilities or the time um, to do everything associated with a project like this. Um, and, you know, even going beyond kind of the stereotype that, that English people can't do math or can't code, etc. Um, even if you can code, um, you might not be able to do this specific type of coding, or you may not know the language or what have you, or it may just be um, more expedient for you to have someone else who can do this easier or who um, this is their main focus. Uh, so it's kind of a dual-pronged and perhaps very obvious um, uh, suggestion for, for where to start. Um, one uh, is perhaps finding people who can help you figure that out. Um, if you've never gone into uh, digital work, um, it's going to be very intimidating. It's probably going to be hard. Um, and just having someone, be it a computer science uh, person at your, at your school, um, be it, uh, you know, I've been on the market for, for many years now and have visited lots of different places. And even a lot of very small, you know, liberal arts teaching colleges will have uh, some sort of specialist there um, for digital humanities. And they may be, um, you know, not the professor of digital humanities. They may be um, uh, someone in the, the IT staff or someone working in the library, etc. And it may not be in their uh, professional title, um, but they're usually there. Um, so, so connecting with that type of person and then I don't want to necessarily get into all of the things that computers are good at or that they can do to augment um, the close reading practices that we want to apply to a text. Um, but those kinds of people would be uh, good people who could let you know whether there are methods or capacities of uh, computers that can help you ask these questions. Um, I think so for your particular question, um, there are, I think, a lot of uh, uh, good resources out there for how you might ask that question. Um, and I'll just kind of name drop here and people can go and, and find this if they would like. Um, but uh, Ryan Cordell, um, I think Elizabeth Maddock uh, Dillon uh, had a part in this. Um, David Smith, a computer scientist, um, and Abby Mullen, I, I think a graduate student is also listed. It's been published in kind of different places, um, different aspects of this. Um, but an article, uh, uh, Reprinting Circulation and the Network Author in Antebellum Newspapers, 
um, describes a very similar thing to what uh, you're looking to find. Um, he was hoping to find um, uh, instances where specific stories were printed and then reprinted in other newspapers and just kind of look at the geographic and the, the social elements of how those things spread. Um, and you do that very quickly um, by uh, doing what's called an engram analysis, and there are other things that go along with this, um, but essentially you take uh, an engram is a n number of word passage, uh, so they use specifically five grams, so five words. Um, they look at the first five words, um, words two through six, words three through seven, etc., on this kind of sliding scale, um, and then kind of match to see how many words are in common uh, between a specific passage and all of the other passages um, in a corpus. Uh, and you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. I don't, I don't necessarily want to go into it, but basically you're just getting a similarity score um, between those or among those. Um, and that's something that you could very well do, um, specifically if you're looking for a single passage uh, like you do in the paper that you shared with me. I mean, that can just be a, a search. And, you know, a lot of people, when they see digital humanities works, it may look um, very intimidating. There may be formula, there may be um, very complicated graphs, etc. Um, but the dirty secret, I think, of DH is that it doesn't have to be very complicated. A lot of the um, most uh, well-known studies in digital humanities, and this is something that still makes me angry today because as a graduate student, I started with a 3,000 work corpus, um, and now I'm working on a 600,000 work corpus. Um, a lot of the most famous studies are done on a corpus of 150 works of uh, Victorian literature that's like Dickens and, and all of these things that we already know about uh, from reading as humans. Um, but, you know, that also goes for methods. Like some of these methods that you can use are things that you can just pull up a little program or you can just do a search for um, different things. Um, you know, just control F um, and searching through a bunch of, of, uh, of works. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that kind of uh, social approach to doing research, um, finding someone, um, and Spencer, in your case, I'd be happy to, to help, um, but finding someone who maybe knows a little bit more than you do and, and being able to admit that people um, might know a little bit more than you do uh, and, and wanting to, to work with them. Uh, when I first started in digital humanities, a lot of it was trying to rope in a computer science professor. Um, they may be kind of interested, um, but you know, they're, uh, they're the ones kind of doing the English professor the favor. Um, and I think there's really been a turn recently um, where people in computer science have seen what we've been doing um, and are really interested in it and want to be involved in projects. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's a really exciting time to, to get started doing this. Um, where you don't have to feel like a burden or, or the Luddite um, on a project. It can be really kind of um, uh, an equal partnership in a way. Yeah, thanks for that, Brad. I'm, I'm, you know, what I'm really taking away is, is you know, the importance of collaboration, which is, you know, something that I definitely, as uh, somebody in literary studies and American studies for a while, you know, you look, you look with envy sometimes on, on the kinds of ways in which people are collaborating in, in the sciences and, and the digital humanities. Um, seem to, to offer a path, you know, for just a little bit more of that interaction in, in the research side of things, which which is great. Um, and then also, I think one thing that we had, you know, just, I had, you know, we had preliminary conversations about this point, 
that you had highlighted for me that I just wanted to make sure we, we kind of had in the podcast was just that um, you were pointing out to me that it was right um, to approach this with a little bit more of a, a clear sense that you're, you're, you're having a, a hypothesis, right? I think we think a lot of ter- times now in our conventional scholarship in terms of the thesis statement, right? Like what is it that you're saying? What is your intervention here? What's the argument that you're going to make that's going to clear space, you know, on some topic? And then you're going to um, supplement or you're going to have us reconsider, right? But, uh, but a lot of times what we're getting from DH is, is that sense that you know, actually lead with the hypothesis, test that, right? I, it's been remarkable in those articles that you mentioned that you sent to me. You know, how many times you end up getting some conclusion and saying, well, you know, uh, this project is very much incomplete, right? That's oftentimes the way that they're ending these articles. You know, there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, we've tested this. And these are some of the conclusions. Um, but I have been struck, you know, it has been refreshing to, to just see different types of conclusions. And I think uh, for, for folks that, like myself at times, have been a little bit wary of, of what DH can uh, can be for our field and what it might spell for, for our field, um, uh, thinking in terms of these like complementary terms, right? Like the, the, the these lo- these large scale questions can be answered and maybe not always conclusively, but they can they can really posit some different kinds of questions to then ask about the material that we might not have begun with, right? Um, so uh, I, I was I was appreciative of you telling me that you know uh, that that was that was something to to play up, you know, to 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 stay with the hypothesis. There's one last thing I'd, I'd like to talk about before we we wrap this up. Uh, and that's uh, pedagogy, right? I mean, this is a, a huge, a huge facet of what the DH um, kind of um, horizon is giving us, right? So, the, the the question I wanted to ask you is because you know you're you're at the Georgia Institute of Technology, Georgia Tech, and obviously you would you would expect, uh, certainly as from an outsider perspective, for a lot of your students and and people that are at that institution to be a little bit more tech savvy, right? Um, More interested in engineering and STEM. Uh, I personally, and I think a lot of, you know, folks that are um, around the country and and people who might be listening to this podcast working in American studies or literary studies uh, might be working in different kinds of environments, right? and for me personally, I'm at a medium-sized public liberal arts school in Virginia, Longwood University. Um, and I'm wondering what possible ways I could utilize um, digital humanities um, resources, methods, perhaps, um, in maybe something like an American literature survey or an American studies class uh, devoted to the 19th century, um, maybe in a modest way, uh, you know, a small-scale way uh, at first among students who kind of contrary to uh, maybe what, what you who you have uh, at tech are not especially computer savvy and like a lot of young people are really not the kind of digital natives quote unquote that uh, we were kind of told they were in dominant media narratives so uh, maybe you can reflect a little bit on what what you've what you've done with students in the lab but uh, but yeah well, I'd, I'd love to know if you have any ideas about um, you know how, how can we apply this in a, in a kind of liberal arts context or, or a context that might not uh, seem so immediately suited to digital humanities work Sure, yeah. Um, So I'll get into some specific resources uh, in a moment here, but I I will say, so I've done this teaching of these methods, um, both at Georgia Tech, where you're right, we are blessed for students um, who can go and do stuff that I could never do over the course of two years in the course of, you know, a three-week semester. Um, But I also taught this at, at University of Miami, um, which is a liberal arts school. Um, it's maybe a, a little bit bigger than, than Longwood, um, but you know, uh, not students who are necessarily 
um, super adept at tech. Um, and in fact, pretty much universally, um, one of the things that I hear from a lot of people who end up doing uh, digital humanities projects in my classes is that they're not good at computers. Um, and I've gotten a lot of my best projects from people who are not good at computers. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one of the things that I try to stress, and this is something that you don't necessarily have this empathy until you've done a digital humanities project, um, but you know that 90% of it is data cleaning, 90% of it is um, uh, just messing around with things until they work. Um, and oftentimes you don't even get to that last 10% where they do work. Um, so this project that I've been working on, and a lot of this is because my position is more professional um, than, than research at this point, um, but it started in 2015, 2016, um, and is still going, and I'm also you know, starting other projects up. Um, so I think whenever you assign projects to people, um, the thing that you wanna stress is that they be engaging with the methods and using them to ask interesting questions. Um, and that's really what I evaluate these projects on. Um, I don't necessarily judge them for not having good results. Um, I do judge them if they have bad results and then they try to argue them into being good results. Um, but I, I don't like, I want them to say, I got bad results. This is why this is what I can do to do this project better in the future, which is something that you saw in, um, some digital humanities projects that, that are published. Um, I think the other thing is there are so many things that fall under digital humanities um, and that's been kind of a self-conscious thing that the field has done um, in saying like you don't have to be technical. Um, you can uh, also just you can be someone who uh, is using humanistic frameworks to look at technology. So there's also like a whole theoretical wing that people don't even you know do technical processes. That's one way uh, that you can bring this in. Um, but I think if you want to actually incorporate technology, um, there's a lot of really easy uh, intro tools um, that first, I think people listening to this, professors, et cetera, um, instructors um, can very easily get uh, acquainted with. And I think that's important if you're teaching something to be able to at least use it in some way um, so that you can then pass on that knowledge. Um, but one place you can look for examples of this, um, the Britain Fellows at Georgia Tech um, are a postdoctoral uh, program uh, doing the, the writing and communications uh, program. Um, and they are very experimental in the things that they have their students do. Um, and there's kind of a, a, a unofficial mandate for um, integrating technology into the things that they do. So a lot of them um, have students helping with digitization of different, you know, poetry archives and archives of Atlanta history, et cetera, uh, onto a platform called Omeka, um, which is relatively easy to use. Um, there are uh, several people uh, within the digital humanities uh, community, and there's many more than I'm going to mention now, um, but Miriam Posner um, has a lot of really good uh, introductory videos um, to uh, show people how to use some kind of on-ramp tools um, for doing this research. She has ones on the topic modeling tool, um, which is topic modeling is a, a, a process that's kind of hard to do if you're not using this tool. Um, 
sorry, I'm trying to remember the the person at University of Pennsylvania who who built that tool, Scott Scott Enderly. There it is. Um, uh, Ryan Cordell, who I mentioned earlier, uh, had a really good article about you know how to constructively teach. Uh, students and a lot of it had to do with you know as literature professors um, and as DH professors we tend to get really fascinated with the arcana of our fields um, and the different kind of theoretical frameworks etc and students don't care about that um, they just want to go and like play with the tools and, and do stuff like that um, the different tools that might be useful are AntConc um, which is a concordancing tool it's very easy it's graphical uh, Voyant tools is online um, which is, you know, there's a lot of things to be said for something that you don't have to download anything for. Um, and we'll give students like graphs of word occurrences and, and topics, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the main thing for um, people who might be at uh, places without a tech infrastructure and without um, uh, students who see themselves as tech savvy um, is just to understand the provisional nature that we've been talking about, about all of this work. Um, you know, uh, the first time that I taught this to students, uh, I just I give students the option. And that's another thing that I do. I always just say, like, if you want to do a digital project, you can or you can write the regular eight page final paper. Um, so they, they have to be interested in doing it. But I had uh, two girls who both said um, technology, you know, I'm really bad at computers. Uh, I'm not a tech person, et cetera. And they did really cool work. Uh, one did a um, parts of speech analysis of tender buttons. Uh, called something like um, tender buttons, maybe not a complete load of crap anyway, or something like that, um, where she's looking at, you know, the frequency with which uh, Gertrude Stein is using kind of uh, several parts of speech at once with different words, with, with the same words, um, and then trying to like quantify how she's doing that more than regular writing would. Um, another person did uh, a simple concordancing um, a, a collocate analysis, so words that are co-located together, um, uh, specifically with color in Maggie, Girl of the Streets. Um, so looking at like the different kind of emotional valences that tend to be brought up with the word yellow versus the word black, etc. Um, yeah, and those are done with very simple programs. Um, they, if they had turned in stuff and they didn't have like a great uh, conclusion or, or um, you know, they hadn't proved their hypothesis, I still would have been very happy. Um, with them using the tools, recognizing what the tools can do, um, and just trying to embark on that 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 kind of operation. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Thanks. Uh, maybe what we can do is, uh, you know, working with the the, the podcast folks, um, try and get some links to some of the resources you've mentioned in the description. Uh, we'll see about that. Um, but uh, I want to wrap it up uh, just about there, uh, Brad, just so we don't go too long here. But this has been really, really fascinating. Um, and just, uh, you know, uh, as a recap with the, the pedagogy aspect, I mean, I, I definitely hear you when you, you, you kind of say that, that we need to lay the emphasis on the process and make sure they're engaging with the, the different kinds of approaches that come with, with, with using DH more so than the product, right? I mean, especially in these early stages. Um, and uh, I'll be looking to, you know... Uh, uh, load up your inbox with many questions on this uh, subject. Yeah, and it does have the added benefit of, you know, uh, English departments are often maligned by students and by their parents as not offering uh, valuable skills. And maybe this is a little mercenary, um, but in integrating these kinds of things into your courses, your students do get um, really great skills in, you know, using spreadsheets and doing quantitative analysis, etc. Like all the times in my uh, class reviews, people say like, 
I expected to read some books. I never expected to get better at Excel or better at um, R or Python or what have you in this class, in this English class. Um, so, you know, a, a little bit of a mercenary thing, but, you know, it's, it's also a better way to prepare your students. And I think that, 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 that certainly applies for those that are teaching uh, gen ed courses as well, right? I mean, we're, we're teaching folks that necessar- aren't necessarily, you know, uh, majoring in history or uh, English or whatever the case may be. But, uh, but thanks again, Brad. Um, I just mentioned um, uh, that Brad does have that article out in ESQ. Um, I think it's some good background. Um, Brad's lab, uh, well, his project online is, again, tmi.gatech.edu. Uh, that'll take you to the TMI project. Uh, his Twitter handle is at BCWRIT, uh, B-C-W-R-I-T. My Twitter handle is at Vintage Garrity for all you basketball fans. Um, and um, thank you very much for your time. I hope uh, I wish you all the best during these difficult times. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.